We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, please turn to Mark chapter 1, page 836. And as you're doing that, I want to set up kind of a scenario in which you begin working. And at your job, you start to share your faith, the hope that you have in Jesus that comes to the gospel. And one of your co-workers hears this and they're intrigued and they want to know more. What do you do? How do you respond? Where do you direct them? What well, kind of as a way of pastoral encouragement? Let me do this. Direct them to God's word. Invite them to read the Bible because it's the word of God that changes the hearts of people. But where specifically should you direct them in God's word? A couple of different places. If they have some kind of background, some familiarity with the the Bible, I would encourage them to read the Gospel of John. That's always a great place. But the first place, if they have no background that you can direct them, is the Gospel of Mark. That's a great place for someone who's new to the Bible to start their journey reading and learning about who God is, and specifically this person we call Jesus. Why? Because the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus. And yes, you can see Jesus through the whole story of the Scriptures. But sometimes it's easier than others. In the Gospel of Mark, you have the words, the actions, the deeds, the miracles, the healings of Jesus. And it's up close and personal. Jesus is, we could say, in technicolor in the Gospels. But especially in the Gospel of Mark. You have this biographical sketch of his life. And it's a great place for people new to the Bible to begin with. It's also the shortest. There's 16 chapters, and depending on how fast you read, you can actually read through the Gospel of Mark in less than 90 minutes. So less than a movie, you could read through the entire Gospel of Mark. It's fairly easy to understand. Now, they'll have questions, and they'll want to talk to you about it. But on its face, Mark is pretty straightforward and not that difficult to get. It's jam-packed with all these stories. It's kind of abrupt, and there's all these quick transitions. The word immediately appears 42 times. And so you have this picture of Jesus where he's always on the move doing something, speaking with people, healing people. And so it has a, a real unique kind of pace, and it shows Jesus not just as a merely historical figure, but it's God come in the person of Jesus to renew and to restore and to save his people. And lastly, the Gospel of Mark is all about discipleship. That's the purpose of Mark's Gospel. That's really the purpose of all four Gospels as we looked at the last few weeks. Is that it's a universal call by Jesus to follow him as his disciple. And discipleship just means that we walk with Jesus. We love Jesus. We obey Jesus. We try to emulate his character. We suffer when God calls us the way that Jesus does. And this is the beginning, the foundation for someone who's new to the faith or is exploring the faith that they need to grasp. That's why the Gospel of Mark is such a great start. So that's where we're going to be looking today is Mark chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to stand, open your Bibles as we read Beginning in verse 9. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee 
And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open, the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Then the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, our day, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. Some people self-identify as Christian and their behavior and the things that they believe and the things that they're committed to might be radically different than what you and I would identify as orthodox Christian belief. In all honesty, the use of the word Christian or Christianity has become so widespread that it's really not a helpful term anymore. When someone says that I'm a Christian, I immediately start to probe and ask questions because I want to know, what do you mean by Christian? Maybe a better word for you and I to start using as we refer to us in our walk with Jesus is the word disciple. That's the word the Bible and the Gospels use. If you define disciple, it looks like this. One who accepts and assists in the spreading the doctrines of another. One of the twelve in the inner circle of Jesus' followers, according to the Gospel accounts, we refer to them as the twelve disciples. Or one who is a convinced adherent of a school or an individual teacher. So, disciple doesn't have to be in, in the arena of religion exclusively. There are a number of other arenas. One word that we use in the English language that's equivalent or, or a close approximation of a disciple is the word apprentice. You know, you can think of it in that way. Think about this. You're an apprentice or a disciple. Either you or someone you know of a popular diet craze. And these come and go all the time. Some of them are better than others, but sometimes people find a new diet craze and they get excited. And they tell you all about the Atkins diet. Or, you know, then they have limited success on that. And so they think, well, I want to to see more improvement. So they move on to the South Beach diet. Or now we have the paleo or the, the, the keto diet. I mean, it's always one thing after another. But here's the thing. If you're going to be successful in any one of these programs, you've got to be committed to it. The one I'm about to start is called the potato diet. Okay. And this is real, true. We're going to find out how committed I am and how successful the potato diet is over the coming week or few days. But you have to commit yourself to this diet. You have to be zealous in your efforts. And some of you may know people. There are certain things that seem to captivate people's attention and passion. It's like the joke that goes a vegan, an atheist, and a CrossFit athlete walk into the bar. How do you know? Because they told everybody within two minutes. If you've ever met somebody who does CrossFit, they're going to tell you all about CrossFit. Not only are they going to tell you about CrossFit, but they're going to tell you how CrossFit changed their life, and they're going to try to recruit you 
to CrossFit. That's, that's discipleship. And CrossFit, they understand something about discipleship and they do it really well. Their, their lives are changed and then they're out actively seeking out other people who they can influence to have their lives changed as well. Mark's gospel is all about discipleship. And this chapter shows us what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Did you notice it moved rather quickly? It's kind of abrupt and choppy. And he doesn't cover all of the details that some of the other gospel writers do. He begins by quoting the prophet Isaiah. He introduces us to John the Baptist in the verses that preceded the ones we read this morning. And John the Baptist has this ministry, this ministry of calling people to repent. We looked at last week. He was successful. God blessed his efforts, people were coming out by the hundreds, and it got the attention of the religious leaders. Then Mark immediately transitions out of the ministry of John the Baptist into the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, all in five verses. So he covers the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, where Mark says he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and he covers all of that in five verses. Mark introduces us to this baptism of Jesus through this man named John the Baptist. And he's leading up to this significant encounter in the life of Jesus. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time unpacking its significance, but at the baptism of Jesus, we see something. We see that God the Father declares this to be the Messiah, the true King of Israel. The way God does this is through the voice of God the Father from heaven and then the, the, uh, the descending of the Holy Spirit, and it rests on Jesus. So Jesus is baptized, the heavens open up, and this is the testimony, the testimony that Jesus is the one that God has sent to save his people. The voice of the Father says, you're my beloved son, I'm pleased, the Holy Spirit descends. It's here at his baptism that Jesus commits himself to this mission, this mission which will ultimately lead him to the cross where he offers his life as a substitute, a sacrifice to save sinners at Calvary. So Jesus is baptized. He's identified as the Messiah, the Son of God, with whom the Father is well pleased. And the Spirit descends on him and immediately drives him out into the wilderness. There in the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan. If you want to read more about that, you can go to Matthew chapter 4 where you can see some more of the details. But Mark just says he was there in the wilderness for 40 days and he defeats the enemy. Satan throws everything at him that he possibly can. And where the first Adam failed in the garden... And ate from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And he sent all of creation into uh, chaos and destruction. The second Adam is driven into the wilderness for 40 days. And there he's victorious. He's showing that he is able to provide and to do the work that God has given him. So that he might provide salvation for guilty people by grace through faith in him alone. So Mark is moving quickly, rapidly when we get finally down to verse 14. Where Jesus begins this public ministry. Notice what Jesus does in his public ministry. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus comes into Galilee and he proclaims the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the first thing we see in this passage is that discipleship is all about repentance. We talk about repentance before, but it's interesting to note that Jesus is preaching the same message that John did. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, why? Because the kingdom of God has come. Now, I don't know about you, but most of us don't like that word repentance. 
We don't like to think about repentance. It was almost 10 years after I came to faith before I really started to understand what repentance is and how it should look and operate in the life of our believer, in the life of a believer. Now, in our society, we absolutely reject the notion of sin and judgment. You're not even allowed to talk about those things. Those are kind of been fenced off as communication and conversation, non-starters. But not only in society, but I think in the church, we don't always think positively or see repentance as a good thing. The way we see it is kind of like this. Hudson went to the doctor yesterday. He was diagnosed with walking pneumonia, and they prescribed him an antibiotic called ZPAC. We think of repentance like antibiotics. We're encouraged to take it when things get so bad that we desperately need it. But we would prefer that we were never sick. We would prefer to avoid sin rather than needing to repent of sin. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible takes a totally different approach. The Bible says that repentance is part and parcel all of the Christian life. That every experience that you and I have should be marked by this idea of repenting of sin. One pastor said it like this. The Christian life is repentance from start to finish, from beginning to end. Why? Because to know the living God is to be exposed as a hopeless sinner. And to be a hopeless sinner before the living God forces us to take up the posture of repentance as we turn from sin and we are embraced by him. Now, the word repent, the word repentance occurs 56 times in the New Testament. So it's a significant theme in the Bible. And you could translate it or approximate it like this to convert or to turn, which are also kind of common English translations. But what we see here in this passage is the very first words of Jesus, his public ministry are this. I'm going to preach the gospel of God which is the good news that God has done something in the person of Jesus to make salvation possible. And the response to that proclamation, the preaching of that gospel, is this, people would repent of sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he declares that the purpose of his coming is to call sinners to repentance. When Jesus sends out his disciples to preach, they went out in Mark chapter 6 and they preached this same message that people should repent and believe the gospel. After he is resurrected from the dead in Luke chapter 24, we read that repentance, the forgiveness of sins, will be preached to all nations in his name. Jesus declared that unless you repent, you perish. And then in order to enforce the message, he repeated it over and over. Fast forward to Acts. After Jesus ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit's been poured out. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. His two sermons are all about repentance. In which he says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. He says that the message should be declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. So repentance is a key part of the Christian life. So what does repentance look like in the life of a believer? Well, one of the ways that I've heard it described is like this. Let me see if I can read to you this story. Imagine there's a man walking down the street. And this man is convicted of his sin. And he's walking in this one direction and he realizes that he's heading the wrong way. So what does he do? He stops walking, he turns around, and he heads the other direction. It's a quick, it's a simple, it's an easy process. Once he realizes he's headed the wrong direction, he stops, he turns around, and he heads 
the opposite direction. But imagine that same guy now is no longer walking, but he's on a bicycle and he's heading the wrong direction. The process is a little bit more involved and it takes a little bit more room and it takes a little bit more time for him to get stopped, for him to change direction and to get going. Depending on the speed that he's traveling, it might take a day or a week or a month. But now imagine that this same man is in a boat. Not just a small boat, but a cruise ship or a battleship, something incredibly large. And once that thing gets going, it's hard to slow those down and stop them. It takes lots of time. It takes lots of room. And each one of us are either walking, riding a bicycle, or on a boat in this process of repentance. And for some of us, repentance happens really quickly, and we turn immediately. For others of us, we're in this process, and it takes a long time for us to slow down, for us to stop, for us to change direction, and then for us to get moving the right way. Now, all of these images apply to repentance. There are some sins that are small and easy to repent of. There are others that are enormous. They've shaped us for the entirety of our lives. And it's harder for us to repent and then to pursue a life of holiness. But that's what repentance looks like. Repentance in our life is not always instantaneous. Sometimes God works in us over time. Sometimes our awareness of sin grows slowly. And then the desire to change comes maybe even slower. God is slowing us down, stopping us carefully. So that he can then reorient us towards himself. The second thing we see in this image is the idea of turning as well. There is a period of time when people are in process. They're no longer following the old direction, but they're also not following the new direction as well. But they're in transition. And we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to be patient with others as they're going through this process of repentance. Sometimes sin has been confessed. But there are still slips and falls. But when when repentance is really at work in the life of a believer, those things become fewer and fewer and far in between. That's the way repentance works and looks in the life of a believer. Repentance is more, though, than just being sorry. Repentance is concerned not with the consequences, but with sin itself. What sin really is at its core, it's rebellion, disobedience to a holy God. So repentance always takes place in the context of a relationship. It's always in the context of I've sinned against God. Sometimes repentance takes place in the context of I've sinned against God, but I've also sinned against other people. My wife, my kids, other people that I might work or know with. Why? Because repentance is a relational act. So we repent of sin against God. We repent of sin against one another. We turn from that old direction and we follow after God. C.S. Lewis explained it this way. He said, repentance is not something that God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could choose to let you off if he chose. But it's simply the description of what going back looks like. So no longer going away from God. Now we're moving in the direction Towards God, knowing that the gospel means that God has already moved towards us in Christ Jesus. So that's what repentance looks like. That's the first step in Christian discipleship. Secondly, discipleship we see takes place in community. God calls us and his disciples to live in community. We talk about community. It's everywhere. But I don't think we always really know what it means. You say, I live in the promontory community or I live in the Glenwild community. But the interesting thing is most of those people don't really know each other. Not well. 
So to say you live in community doesn't always mean that we live in the kind of community that the Bible and that Jesus is creating for his people. What we see Jesus do in this passage is he calls two brothers to join this small band of disciples to leave their old life as fishers, to leave their family in order to come and follow him as his disciple. He's inviting these men to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's encouraging them to make a commitment as he has made a commitment to them. He'll be their master. They'll be his disciples. It's interesting. We live in a very weird age in which you can get your Jesus fix by watching a sermon online. You can actively participate in spiritual activity virtually. Now, here's the interesting thing to think about. God is the sovereign God of all the universe. He could have operated any way he wanted to the plan of salvation. He could have done it virtually. He could have written it in the sky or he could have done it any other way that he would imagine, but he didn't. He came in person, face to face. He tabernacled in our midst. He dwelt among us. See, discipleship always takes place in community, real relationships that have been established on and by the gospel. We weren't created to be spiritual free agents. We weren't created to live life on our own with a little fix or hit of Jesus through the Internet or through podcasts. Now, those things play a role. Those are valuable resources. But that is not the way God intended his people to live out the gospel. The gospel is preached and proclaimed. The sacraments are administered through a local congregation. He calls them, come, be a part of my group. Lastly, discipleship is all about following. In verse 16, as he was passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a command It's an imperative. He's not saying, you know, if you don't have anything better to do or, you know, if you're kind of bored with the fisherman lifestyle, then come follow me. That's not what he says. He commands them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then Mark says immediately, don't overlook that, immediately after these four men were called to follow Jesus, they left and they joined him. They respond to the invitation of Jesus to follow him as his disciple. Jesus is a man of incredible authority. He speaks and the hearts of his people respond. He calls them with authority and his sheep, these four brothers, respond. When Jesus speaks the command to follow me, his people hear his voice, they know him and they follow him. The problem is I think most of us in church think we're following Jesus. But I don't think we really are. We think we're following Jesus, but I think we've gotten it backwards. What we have really done is invited Jesus to follow us. Hey, Jesus, come be a part of my plan. Hey, Jesus, come be a part of my life. Hey, Jesus, come make my dreams become realities. Come be a part of what it is that I'm doing. God, I want you to work, but I want you to work according to my plans. I want you to help me, but I want you to help me navigate my life. My way. It reminds me of a story I heard about a little boy named Charlie. Charlie got a wiffle ball bat and a wiffle ball as a present. So he went over to his neighbor, Mr. Chuck. He said, Mr. Chuck, I'd like to play wiffle ball with you. So here's what we're going to do. I'll stand back here. You throw the ball. I'll hit it. So Mr. Chuck throws the first pitch. Charlie swings and wildly misses the ball by over a foot. Mr. Chuck throws the second pitch. Again, Charlie misses. The third pitch was no better. 
Charlie's exasperated, frustrated, and he says, you're doing it all wrong, Mr. Chuck. He says, what do you mean that I'm doing it wrong, Charlie? He said, you're supposed to throw the ball where I'm swinging the bat. <laughs> Mr. Chuck said, I laughed. He said, I still laugh when I remember that day, but what occurred to me is that we treat God the same way. We're willing to follow as long as he plans, his plans meet ours. As long as what he demands fits inside our box. As long as he's pitching where we want to swing the bat. It doesn't work like that. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross. It is a life in which you deny yourself and you follow Jesus wherever he goes. It's a life where Jesus pitches and we swing where he tells us. And it gets uncomfortable. And sometimes it hurts, but the God, the creator of the universe, the ruler of everything that we know and see, does not bend his will towards yours. He bends your heart towards his. He says, I will make you fishers of men. We follow. He changes. We follow. He transforms us from the inside out. What are some of the things that he does? He makes us, he shapes us, he conforms us, and sometimes it hurts. But he does so that we would resemble the character of Jesus, so that we would look like his son. Our hearts begin to change. We begin to have a burden for people who are lost and are separated from God. We start to become bold in our witness of the gospel. We start to love the truth of God's word. God starts to open doors for us to talk with our neighbors, our family, our friends. And lastly, he's the one that prepares their hearts to hear what we have to say. See, the life of Christian discipleship is about repentance. It's about following Jesus. And we get to share that with other people, that they can experience the exact same thing too. That the same love of God, the same grace of God that found us, that sought us out, is searching and looking for his other sheep as well. So will you follow Jesus this morning? Or will you continue to chart your own course? Will you say to him, wherever you go, whenever you ask, whenever you ask of me, I'll do it. Because see, that's the response of a Christian disciple. Whatever, wherever, whenever. You can think of it like this. Nobody writes checks anymore. Very rarely do people write checks, but... The idea of writing a check, a blank check, signing your name at the bottom, and then losing that is kind of terrifying. Why? Because somebody could go and write it for $500 million, let's say. And if you had $500 million in the bank, then they cash that check and they have all those resources. The call to Christian discipleship is basically Jesus saying, do you trust me enough to sign this blank check? And then whenever I'm ready to fill in the amount. That's what Christian discipleship is. And throughout the ages, there have been men and women who have made that decision to follow Jesus. For some of them, it's meant their life. For others, it's meant their family has had to suffer. But every single one of them, I guarantee you, when we gather together in glory, will say it was worth the price. Let's pray.